0: Welcome to A Face Connecticut, an in depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC FM, and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we're pleased to be joined by Tom Hennick, Public Education Officer with the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Tom, you travel the state educating various officials and groups on Connecticut's FOI law. What do you think is the most important thing for the public to know about FOI?
1: The the public needs to know, Aaron, that this is a law that is for them. It was a law that was created 44 years ago to make sure that people had access to their government. And uh, sometimes people look at it sort of with a a John Desai, perhaps. And it's, it's really a law for the people. It's a law for, to allow people to have access to their public agencies so that they can get involved in democracy. And it really is one of the one of the linchpins to making sure that democracy works. Talk a little about the history of Connecticut's FOI law. Sure. The law was uh, created 44 years ago. It was actually the brainchild of Ella Grasso when she ran for governor for the first time. And if you do the math, 44 years ago puts us right smack in the middle of Watergate. So when Ella was contemplating this run for governor, she was thinking about it. She was in Congress. So this was all exploding all around her. So she had a pretty bird's eye view of what was going on. And it was about the country kind of being brought to its knees, secret government, things being done clandestinely. And and she she recognized that this was not good. And so one of the things she said to people was uh, that if I'm elected, if I decide to run and if I'm elected, I will make sure that we have some sort of an open government law in Connecticut. And, you know, as, as folks know, she, she ran in 1974 and won, first woman ever elected governor in her own right in the United States. And one of the first things she did was put forward the, the FOI Act or, you know, the idea for it in 1975. Just a, a little anecdote that might give people uh, some amusement. When she put it forward, she said, this is so important to our state and so critical to our survival as a democracy that I will see to it that this law is approved unanimously by our legislature. And people just sort of said, sure, right. You know, have you ever watched the legislature? Well, I'm here to tell you that, that she did. She promised it and she got it. There was not a single no vote in the House, not a single no vote in the Senate. The law passed unanimously. She signed it with great flourish and it came into being in 1975. What information is subject to FOI in Connecticut and what is not? Um, kind of a broad question, but the basic idea is that if you are a public agency and you create a record, it becomes a public record. If you hold a meeting, you need to do it in public so that people can watch, you know, observe, see their public agencies in, in action. There are there are different exemptions, exclusions, you know, when I do my those workshops that you referenced, I talk to people about the 3 E's. Everything becomes a public record. You know, I tell them little stories about things that became public records that, that maybe they didn't want them to be. Uh, but then there are these 3 E's, the exceptions, the exclusions, the the exemptions. So there are certain things that can be taken out, you know, for example, there's an, uh, a record that can be withheld if it's an invasion of somebody's personal privacy. There's a process that you have to do to to look at it to see if it fits, you know, the model which comes from a 1993 state supreme court case, but that's just one example of something you could take out. Uh, there's a there's a federal law that overrides FOI when it comes to students' educational records. So records that would personally identify students as they pertain to, you know, their education that could come out. There's a law enforcement record. Uh, if a case, if you're arrested and a case is nollied, after 13 months, the record is erased. It would override freedom of information. Even if the police department still had the record, You, they couldn't give it out. Just a couple of, of examples.
0: Most commonly, I think a lot of people would think about paper documents, but this pertains to emails. It pertains to video. It retains to photos and
1: really any sort of record, right? Right. It retains to anything that the public agency has. Another misconception, I'll, I'll jump back to that in a second, but another misconception is people say, well, I was working at home. I was using my own laptop. I was using my own phone. So that doesn't count, right? Wrong. If you're creating a record in the conduct of the public's business, it's a public record. So it doesn't mean that somebody's going to swoop in and and grab your laptop. It means that if asked for any and all emails pertaining to project X that you worked on, whether at home or at work, they would have to come out. So, so it's the, it's the broad concept that everything is a public record. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned videos, sometimes unintended consequences. There's a, there's a move uh, police departments everywhere. Hartford just did it with, with, uh, you know, dash cams and, and cameras that the police officer body cams. And sometimes thought hasn't been given into, hey, wait a minute, that now becomes a public record. So there are storage issues, there are retention issues, things like that, that should all be considered when, when you kind of create a new public record.
0: How has the FOI law changed since it was enacted 44
1: years ago? Well, one you, you just hit on one of the topics. More and more records are kept electronically And the law hasn't necessarily kept up so there's a lot that's subject to interpretation the law still talks about copying fees at 50 cents a page and more and more records are electronic and there is no fee for electronic records Um, and i think another thing is too with the advent of of email and texting people have made more requests and for some reason and i'm not sure why aaron for some reason it's easier to sit down and bang out an email and make a request than, than it was, I guess, to, to write out a letter and get a stamp and put it in the envelope, because people are seeing more and more requests come to them electronically and, and broader. And then frankly, too, you know, on the other side, there's a, there's a greater concern for security, identity theft and things like that, and trying to keep the balance so that things that should be public remain public. Sometimes we tend to, um, we, we tend to sort of hit things with a broad brush in the wake of 9/11, there were a lot of proposals and things like that, based on on fear. Some justifiable, don't get me wrong, but you have to be careful that you don't take away the public's right to know in the in the name of security or safety. Certainly, these
0: these are the public's records. They're your records. They're my records. We we in a sense own them and should have access to them, but. Are agencies able to keep up with the requests in in all cases?
1: Also, a good question. Not always. Um, we've had an ongoing discussion with the State Police Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. They had a, a staff shortage, and people are well aware of Connecticut's budget problems. We have them too. You know, we we lost two positions uh, about a year or so ago that we haven't been able to get back. It makes our job harder with 800 to 900 complaints a year sometimes but they, they lost positions and, they, and the requests mount. People want records from their state police. And they were reaching a point where it was taking them 18 months to two years to produce some records. And that, that really, the FOI Act talks about prompt access and it reached the point where that just wasn't prompt. And, and part of it is, is due to the budget, but also part, part, of, part of it would be part, due to burgeoning requests, people wanting more and more information. Walk us through how a typical FOI request is sure. filed. Someone would want to know some information. They want to know. Now, first of all, it's just sort of a, one of those common misconceptions. Freedom of information is not about answering questions. Many people will walk into a public agency and say, under freedom of information, I have a right to know. Please tell me. Well, we're public servants. We're going to answer the questions, but that's not necessarily what the law requires. It requires a public agency to provide access to the documents or the records that have the information in it. Just just a little aside, you know, people see freedom of information and they think that we are the information center for the entire state of Connecticut. They have this vision of us sitting in this giant vault with every record held by every agency. So every day, literally every day, I take requests from people that say, please send me, and I have to send them a nice little letter that says, no, we're, we're not a repository for records, we have a different function. Well, that happens to public agencies as well. Uh, you know, one, one time a couple of years ago, someone called me up and, and demanded that I tell them how to get tickets to Mary Poppins at the Bushnell. You know, freedom of information, tell me how to get the tickets. Well, that's, so, so we have to sort of educate people that way too. Um, but, so you want to find something out and you say to yourself, okay, what documents would contain that information? Where would I find that out? Then you go to the town hall or the city hall and say, what department would have those records, so you make a request. There's two ways to gain access through freedom of information. One is to ask to inspect the records, which you don't – there's no cost to that. There's no um, – and nothing in writing is required. You say, I'd like to inspect records A, B, and C. And then they would have to provide access promptly, assuming that they weren't exempt. Or you could make a request for copies, in which case you could put the request in writing, That the public agency has a right to, to ask for that, to require that. I would – we like access to records A, B, and C. You put it in writing, and then they would they would tell you, okay, there are you know twenty five pages at fifty cents a page. Give us the money. If the cost exceeds ten dollars, they can get their money up front, and then and that's how that would go. If I wanted those records in electronic format, could I ask for that? If they are already in electronic format. There's no requirement that the public agency put the record, if it's a piece of paper, that they turn it into an electronic record. But if it is, yes, they'd have to produce it in electronic format. Say I make a request for a
0: record that I feel is public information and the agency or
1: town hall or whatever disagrees, what's the next step after that? Looks at one of those three E's that I talked about and says, no, it's exempt, we're not going to give it to you. Well, that's what the Freedom of Information Commission ultimately was Um, created to do, to be the adjudicator, to to break the tie, if you will. Now, to get to the point where that law was approved unanimously, you can imagine the negotiation, the back and forth. And I, and I, I lead with that because you've got a law that's based on a really simple, easy concept, transparency, open government, sunshine is the best disinfectant, all of that. But when you read it, there's a lot of gray area in there, which means that the town could genuinely believe that that record that you sought was exempt and you could genuinely believe that it was not. So what, what, what do you do then? Well, then you file a complaint against the agency and say, look, I asked them for this, they ain't giving it to me, I think I, think I have a right to it. And then you go to the Freedom of Information Commission. So as I said, we get 800 or so, give or take uh, complaints a year, depending on the year. We look at it, we first of all make sure we have jurisdiction. Sometimes people file complaints against things that are not public agencies. Uh, I want the YMCA's, you know, YMCA is not a public agency. So we would have to kick it out. We don't have jurisdiction. Assuming we have jurisdiction, we would take the uh, complaint. We would give it a number. We would docket. We call it docketing the complaint. At the same time, we assign an ombudsman, fancy name for a mediator. We always try to bring the parties together. We have someone, you know, I do some of them, other other attorneys at FOI do some of them, bring parties together to try to see if we can resolve the matter short of a hearing. If that fails, then you then go to a hearing. Now, one of the, one of the nice things for the, for the people about an FOI hearing is that um, you don't need an attorney. It's one of the last vestiges of the people's court, if you will. Most public agencies bring an attorney, but you, you can, you're not required to bring one. You can represent yourself and you can basically state, hey, I think I have a right to this record and here's why. And, you know, I've seen pro se people win cases with attorneys on the other side. So it's, it's meant to be user-friendly. So both sides present their story. You know, they can cross-examine witnesses. They can get testimony. Then the hearing officer takes in the information, digests it, and writes a proposed hearing officer's decision. That decision then goes to the full commission. We have a, a nine-member commission. They are appointed by the governor and by different uh, branches of the legislature, And they make the final decision, and that becomes the ruling. That becomes what you have to do. But even an FOI commission decision can be subject to interpretation. You can appeal an FOI commission decision all the way to the state Supreme Court.
0: You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Tom Hennick, public education officer for the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. Public records are one thing, but one item that has come up from time to time is access to meetings.
1: Great. Yes, I mean the, the both provisions are important, and the, and the meetings provisions. that you talk about things that have changed. The way we communicate with each other today, Aaron, has changed dramatically. You know, um, you talk to your kids, and they say they say, "Dad, I just talked to you yesterday." If you have adult kids who aren't around, I say, no, "I never heard anybody's voice." Well, they when they text you, they and or email or something like that. Well, that's the way we communicate today, and the problem for people on boards and commissions is they shouldn't be doing that. The law is very specific about conducting all business in public. Again, there are carve outs, uh, something called an executive session, where you can, you know, if you have matters that fall into one of the five categories for that, you can do that, you know, offline, if you will. But for the most part, boards and commissions have to notice their meetings, they have to make sure they're meeting in public, and then they have to have minutes of those meetings when the meetings are done. And a board member, you know, starts a conversation and says, "Hey, board members, uh, I don't like this budget item, and here's why. Can we talk about it?" And somebody writes back and say, "Oh no, that's a good, that's a good budget, you know." And so you then the conversation starts rolling on. The next thing you know, they're having the deliberation, the deep deliberative conversation that they should be having in public via email or or via text. What they forget is what I said a couple minutes ago: those those emails and texts are public records. So you've got a, a double a double-edged sword, if you will somebody could ask to see those and then upon seeing those could say hey wait a minute they had their meeting secretly in quiet and so our law is invoked by people who say they're doing their work in secret they have to do their work behind closed doors i get that that's problematic i should probably confess that in my town i was a member of one board for 10 years and i was named to another one a year and a half ago i get that it's hard that you want to call up other board members and start having conversations that's you know kind of to keep things going but the law really requires that the work be done in public.
0: Can it constitute uh, a meeting and deliberations even if it's between
1: two members of a board and there isn't a quorum? Even absent a quorum, the court has said it, it could be a meeting. And I use the word could because, you know, in typical fashion, the um, the appellate court has told us on one hand, no quorum, no meeting. And in another ruling said, no quorum, you're still having a meeting. So there's still sort of a, it's, I call that the dueling rulings. Right now, The court seems to be tilting towards no quorum still a meeting but but stay tuned um there there's actually an active case there that's that that the superior court said that and now it's going back to the appellate court because the parties that we ruled against didn't like it so um and you know people say well wait a minute we're friends we want to go out to dinner and stuff like that well that's one of the carve outs you can certainly go out to dinner but don't start you know having the the conversation that you should be having at the table one of my little throwaway lines is don't set the budget over the eggnog at the Christmas party. You know, you want to be really careful. You're really good. You're a great board. You do it. And then the one time you go out to dinner and get into that passionate discussion, I guarantee you the wrong person sitting in the next booth and files a complaint that you've had a secret meeting.
0: In terms of noticing meetings, Mm -hmm. it used to be that you go to town hall and there was a bulletin board and it listed all the meetings of, of the town government. Now with the internet, what do cities and towns have to do in terms of uh, satisfying FOI law?
1: Actually, the FOI law says very little about things that should be uh, on the town websites. And many, many towns and cities put lots of stuff up there, and that's the best place to go. But under FOI, you need to create an agenda. It needs to be available in your office and in your town or city clerk's office. And that's that's really it. Except for, there's a couple different kinds of meetings. That would be for the regular meeting. For the special meeting, which is a meeting that happens when you're not regularly scheduled to meet, that is the only requirement for, for a website. Back in 2008, the legislature actually passed a law that said all cities and towns, all agencies must put their agendas, their minutes on websites. And that caused panic in some places. Some towns actually took down their websites because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to comply with the law we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the personnel, we don't have the time, you know, all of those things. And um, legislature heard that and said, okay, but do it anyway. And so many towns struggled with it and worked with it and then got to the point where they realized, hey, this is a good thing because the more we put on the website, the fewer calls we get, the fewer, you know, interruptions of our flow, where's the agenda, Where's it? because it's all right there. And then for some reason, two years after they passed the law, the legislature rescinded it for cities and towns. So it holds for state agencies. State agencies must use the internet. So it must be in your office, in the Secretary of the State's office, and on your website. But for cities and towns, the only website requirement is that special meeting notice.
0: How common is it for an agency or or government entity to to have maybe a, a feeling of, of ownership and no, this is my information. It,
1: it's not yours. That's a, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that I stressed, I, I, I try to give, you know, like little anecdotes, uh, I, I had a, about how it's not yours. Uh, we tend to get possessive, you know, it's planning and zoning. You can't have it as police. You can't have it. Or we get selective, which is even, Hey, wait a minute. You're, you're a pain in the neck. Don't, don't come here. Um, you're a nice guy, we'll give it to you. And, and you would think that after all this time that didn't happen anymore, but it still does. And that's one of, the, one of those lessons, you know, he asked sort of the things, what we talk about when I do these workshops. That's one of the first things that I put on the table for folks when we start talking about records. Don't do that, put blinders on, even if it's somebody, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll say, does anybody have to deal with any difficult people? And the hands will shoot up. And I'll say, okay, well we do too, and here's the deal. When somebody who's difficult comes in, you have to forget who they are and any trouble they may have given you in the past and look solely at the record that they're requesting. Look at only at what they're looking to get because even they, even the people who are difficult have a right to the to the records. There's a FOI puts people under a big tent. It's it's the idea is to make information, to make documents, to make meetings, to make democracy available to everybody. If I'm making an FOI request, do I have to tell the agency why I want that information? No, and some will ask you. Now, I say no definitively because it's not required, and and agencies are told not to ask. However, when sometimes people make requests, large requests, our advice are not in the law, but this is what we would suggest, is have a conversation with the requester. And I say the same to requesters. Have a conversation with the agency. You're trying to find something out. You may not know what record to ask for. So instead of asking for a pile of records that you may not need, say, look, I'm trying to find out X. Or if you're the agency, look, you've asked for all these records, but you may not need them all at 50 cents a page. What are you trying to find out? You don't have to tell me, but what are you trying to find out? So maybe we can narrow the scope. Maybe we can work together. To be truthful, the the anecdotal stories that I have heard really say that that has worked a lot. It doesn't work all the time, but it works more often than you would think, and everybody goes away happy. But to answer the question directly, you're, not, you're never required to say what you want it for.
0: FOI is a useful tool for journalists. Yes. But I'm
1: guessing most of the requests aren't made by journalists. You're absolutely true. The, you're absolutely true. You're absolutely right. People say, oh, it's a journalist law. Well, when you look at the complaints that we get, now these are only the complaints. Fewer than 10% of them come from journalistic entities you'd be people people are shocked when I tell them that they think oh the current and the record journal and TIC. they're all putting in requests and complaints that's not the case for the most part I think I think part of that has to do with the journalists being uh, a little more savvy as to what they can and can't get so the complaint numbers from them it, are, are diminished but for them but it's mostly people wanting to find out what's going on now I will say this recently, some people have taken to using this law as a weapon, as a means of getting back at people. Because remember what I said, it's a big tent, and you don't need a lawyer, and you can do it all on your own. We don't like that. We would discourage that at every turn if we could. But the reality is that even if somebody is, is sort of using it in that vein, you still have to look at what the request is. And, and, and to the best of your ability, fill it if the records are, are available.
0: How does that occur? Is there like if someone could be a nuisance by requesting right. information just to be a pain in the neck?
1: Right, right. And and I won't name names, but several towns call with them and they're ready to just, you know, tear their hair out. And it's like, OK, look, there are some things that the, that the town, the public agency can do, first of all. Remind the individual that there is a fee for the pages. No fee for labor, by the way. That's something that some people think there is. There's no fee for labor. But also remind them that a request for records under freedom of information does not mean that the agency comes to a screeching, grinding halt. Doesn't mean that everything happens right away. The FOI Act talks about prompt access to records. And, um, you know, that's sort of clearly open to interpretation. But if an agency only has an hour or two a week to work on this monstrous request that, that clearly was intended to to vex somebody, it's two hours a week. And, oh, by the way, because of what you've asked for, it's going to be months before you get your records. And it would still be prompt because that's what that's what it would be. He is Tom Hennick, public
0: education officer with the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. Thanks so much for joining us this morning.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend.
1: Base Connecticut, is a production of the News
0: and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio.
1: We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Here. Only at T-Mobile. Get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month. with Eligible trade-in when you switch.